You could spend the weekend doing the same old whatever, or you could conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. All right, David, so we're going to get to your playing career, but I want to talk about your, your broadcasting career. I've had the the pleasure of sharing the booth with you doing some Frisco Rough Riders games and uh, now you're you're on a bigger and better things uh and and I think Rangers fans are are fortunate that you are not only uh involved in the studio stuff the pre and the post game shows on the TV side but also getting to do game broadcasts and and I'm always curious when a player uh makes that transition what the experience is like but first of all I guess let's let's get to the origin of this uh what what led you down this path? Why did you decide that this was something you wanted to pursue after uh, after hanging it up? Uh, well, the funny thing is, is that I never really um, envisioned doing something like this. Um, I remember throughout my playing career, people would ask me, "What are you going to do when you're done playing?" And I think in the midst of your career, you're having so much fun, and it's almost like it's never going to end. And so you might throw out some ideas, but at the same time, you're just having so much fun. So it's just not realistic. And then, boom, it happens a lot faster than you think. So I remember when I retired and I had a conversation with John Daniels and just, um, you know, he asked if if I was interested in, in doing anything to stay connected with the organization. So we had breakfast and um, he just, we, we kind of talked through some options and, um, and I was definitely interested in the possibility of working the pre and the post game. And, and possibly uh, that's when um, the Frisco Rough Riders games were mentioned at the time, the opportunity to, to see what it would be like to do a little bit of color. And so I just kind of, uh, yeah, I think the first season I did five games with you for Frisco. And then uh, with the Rangers pre and post game stuff, I did 26 and then just kind of, slowly worked my way up i think it is like 37 games the second year and then uh all the way up to i think a combination of 65 games last year and uh, i think before all of this uh the virus stuff hit i was uh i was supposed to do around 80 games or so so it's just it's been kind of a gradual way to to uh i feel like the fox has done a great job of kind of working uh, just slowly increasing me, and uh, I've, I've really enjoyed it. Um, I think any player would love to, in some way, shape, or form, still be involved in the game of baseball. I, I don't know if anything's ever going to compare to the playing days, but to still be um, connected to, to Major League Baseball, and especially for me, the teams where um, the, the the team where I spent my best years, that's home for me, and. Um, you know, as closest to my heart, it's uh, it's an honor to to still be connected there. All right, I, I'm always interested when a player watches the game from not just the view of a broadcaster, but just maybe with the mentality of a broadcaster. You're now not 
in the trenches with your teammates, fighting for you know every pitch and supporting your guys, but you're, you're now forced to look at the game and watch the game uh, as an analyst, and, and not that you're all of a sudden going to be negative or super positive, but you're you know you force yourself to assess the game when you when you started doing that, uh, especially last year on, on the big league side. What were some of the things that stood out to you about watching the game from from a broadcaster's viewpoint, seeing the game, you know, on a different level, but also uh, from a, a, an analyst's mentality? Uh, you know, I think the hard part from an analyst mentality is just, um, I think a lot of, I mean, some, some guys are naturally blessed with it. You look at like Dave Raymond or, or most play-by-play guys anyway, and that's, you know, they're living their dream job. Um, you know, they probably maybe would have liked to have been a player at some point and that didn't pan out. And so they, they looked for a different avenue, but their ability to get excited um, and just the way that they make the fans excited. And so I think that's kind of a challenge for somebody like me, even though I might experience the excitement more on an internal side or, um, you know, I always talk about myself to, to my friends or other people as just a, a baseball nerd. You know, I love the game and I love breaking it down. But when it comes to talking about it, a lot of times that excitement doesn't necessarily come out in my voice. It, you know, I'm just, I feel like my voice is a little bit more monotone. And so, you know, just your delivery of your facts uh, is one thing. But um, also just kind of maybe staying up to date. Uh, I feel like I would identify myself as more of a, a traditionalist in, in, uh, in terms of baseball, but you also have to, to stay up with the modern trends. Baseball has gone more to the analytics side, and so maybe to try to uh, inundate myself and catch up on the numbers game and, and what those things mean and how to deliver that information to the fans. So the, those have been some challenges, but it's uh, – it's really been enjoyable because basically, I mean, I, I just get up there and I talk about the game. You know, I just kind of um, unpack it for the fan as as it happens. And um, hopefully my love for the game um, and, and maybe a little bit of knowledge comes out uh, just in talking through it while, while the game unfolds. All right, David, uh, I want to get to your playing career. And, and I guess one of my transitions would be uh, – in, in getting to know you, uh, I learned very quickly in, in sharing some time in the booth that you have this impeccable memory. I could ask you about Steve Jones from third grade, and you'd tell me that you went three for four on, against him uh, You know, on that field behind the middle school on Saturday afternoon, and then that next Sunday you ended up going four for four. Like It's, it's incredible what you're able to remember uh, and I'm wondering how how much of an advantage was that ever for you as a player? Did your your ability to to really remember uh, matchups and and at bats and and maybe your your history uh, ever come into play and serve as an advantage for you? Maybe it saved me a little bit of time here and there because I wasn't a big video guy. Um, and I think by choice, of, or you just it never really clicked with you to to watch the video. Just nothing, nothing um, could replace actually standing in the box against the pitcher. And you can watch video all you want. You can be prepared. But I was also not a guy who 
I don't feel like I had much success when I went up there and I sat on pitches. I was a guy that I looked for fastball pretty much ever. There, there were times, especially against lefties, where I would sit on a breaking ball or something like that in a certain count. Um, or maybe, you know, John Lackey, for example. John Lackey, especially early in his career, he was known for being a big curveball guy. And, uh, you know, the average pitcher would, you know, they like to get ahead of you, and then they'll throw the curveball to, to bury it or to, to put you away for their strikeout pitch. John Lackey would throw it any pitch, any count, really, type of thing. So I could get 2-0, and a lot of times I might look for, for a curveball off of John Lackey. Or Eric Bedard was a lefty. That was another one. But everybody else, I was like, all right, I'm going to go up there. I'm going to look for my strength. I'm going to try to hit the fastball. And then I'm going to adjust accordingly. And I could adjust pretty well off of a, a curveball or slider, but change-ups were always the, the pitch that, that gave me difficulty. But I think um, just in terms of, of memory, I, I could remember what, uh, what a certain pitcher would throw to me in, in, a, in a certain count. And like I said, that, that kind of saved me from, all right, let me go back to the video um, against you know what Felix Hernandez did to me in May of 2009, and those at bats, and I mean it, it saved me some time there. But I mean it's regardless. I mean hitting is such a difficult thing to do at the major league level, and I think my general philosophy was to try to simplify it. And if I um, if I cluttered my mind and my brain with with too much information, with too much video, then I was going to overthink it. So. Um, I guess there's a there's a fine line and a happy medium there where you want to be prepared and you want to know uh, your game plan going in, but not not overload yourself because you you want your mind to be free and easy when you're at the plate. Who's the best pitcher that you had lots of success against? The you know to your memory. Um. I mean, I would say because there were there were a few guys that maybe I hit for high average off of, but I think if we're looking at the overall combination of like average power, I think the one guy that sticks out was a guy that actually spent a little bit of time with the Rangers was Doug Sister. Um, maybe a few others that jump out are Rick Porcello and Clay Buckholtz. Um, just and I and I don't know why exactly that I think for Fister and Porcello it's more just because of I liked hitting off of pitchers that that threw sinkers and uh, just with the type of left-handed swing that I had I I feel like those types of pitches kind of um, they benefited me in the way that they their their movement kind of went right into my barrel and um, and I, I think every every hitter and every pitcher has those type of matchups that that benefit them and and for some reason and and maybe you know I think in Fister's case if you look back at some of the at-bats I think maybe just poor pitch calling because a lot of times I would love uh, Bartolo Colon you you would always get to two strikes with him and he would try try to throw that ride back fastball and that was his bread and butter but that was also my bread and butter looking for that fastball in so I didn't understand necessarily why pitchers would try to go in early in my career. I feel like uh, it became more of a weakness later in my career, maybe when my bat slowed down. But um, that's uh, that's something that I didn't necessarily have to look for. If they threw that, I could just drop my hands on it just as long as uh, my timing was right and things just worked themselves out. So uh, I think maybe every now and then that they did me favors by throwing the wrong pitches in the wrong counts as well. 
All right, David, I want to go back to uh, when you were acquired by the Rangers. So uh, you you grew up in Texas. You went to Baylor. Uh, this was not a foreign territory for you, but you were a part of the Red Sox organization, and the Rangers made a trade. Uh, they, they made a series of trades, really, in, in the years leading up to 2010 to bolster the organization. You were... Uh, Probably near the beginning of, of those trades, the Rangers got you at the trade deadline in 2007. Uh, first of all, Eric Gagne was traded to Boston. I mean, this was a guy who at one point was the best closer in baseball, uh, and you got traded for him. But w- what do you remember about getting traded to the Rangers, leaving the Red Sox organization, going to Texas, and and everything that comes with getting traded? Because I know it's so much more than just Hey, now you got to wear a different uniform, and you're going to be playing at a different ballpark uh, for your home games. I know it, it's a lot more than that, especially when you come up with an organization. So, what what do you remember about uh, the the 24, 48 hours when that all took place? Well, first of all, if you rewind, if you rewind it back a few years, I think as you um, as you enter professional baseball, you're obviously gung ho about the opportunity and. Um, and I realized what an opportunity I had with the Red Sox. But at the same time, it took me a little bit longer to figure things out than the Red Sox wanted me to. did not live up to expectations my first few years in the minor leagues. But I also realized that, hey, they have Manny Ramirez in left field. Um, they had you know guys like Coco Crisp, Trotnix, and they signed J.D. Drew to a big contract um, before 2007. So I think I kind of realized quickly that, um, maybe I'm not going to be a part of their future. It might be best for me because it's hard to to break into a, a veteran um, big spending organization like this um, if you're not putting up monster numbers as a minor leaguer. So I think I quickly realized maybe in 2005 that it might be in my best interest to get traded. So I was kind of hoping to get traded. And um, so when the when the deadline rolled around in 2007, um, we're in Columbus, Ohio on a road trip and, you know, there was no 24 hour baseball MLB network or anything like that at the time. So, uh, I think ESPN had a, maybe a 30 minute or hour long special that led up to the deadline. And, um, and Peter Gamans was talking, I had just laid down for, for a nap. Um, just was kind of closing my eyes. Didn't have a whole lot of expectations, maybe was hopeful, and then my name was mentioned, and so I shot up right away and um, just kind of from there on had a sense of adrenaline flow, went to the ballpark um, just by the way that the coaching staff was acting. I knew that something was up, and uh, sure enough, found out a few hours later that it was a done deal and that it was headed to Texas. And um, I actually had a dream the, the previous offseason that I was going to be headed to Texas uh, my wife, who is originally from Dallas, I'm originally from Houston. We we had been married about two years. She was pregnant, um, set to give birth with uh, her um, to our first child, and which actually happened um, three days after I got traded. So that kind of all plays into the story and just made it kind of a, a chaotic week to ten days. But um, man, what what good timing! You know, we we're starting a family. We had decided, you know, the, the previous off season, uh, knowing that we're, you know, our family was we we're going to start having kids. That all right, we need to to pick. Are we going to live in Houston? Are we going to live in Dallas? We picked Dallas. 
I get traded to the Rangers. Um, great opportunity. I mean, everything really fell into place, and it was a uh, it was a huge blessing. And just like I said, it was it was a week to t- ten day period between getting traded, um, becoming a dad, and then getting called up to the Rangers. After you know, I flew across country, spent a few days with uh, Oklahoma City, who was uh, the AAA team for the Rangers at the time, and then eventually getting called up and, and getting that opportunity that that I had wanted forever to get to the big leagues and stay with the big league stay with the big league team. Um, what a, what a whirlwind it was. So you, you join the Rangers, you come from a, you know, a historic franchise in the Red Sox, uh, an organization that had, you know, a few years prior, I believe while you were a part of the organization, not, not necessarily at that level, gotten the, uh, proverbial monkey off their back. Now, uh, in 2000, 2006, you you got to play with the Red Sox. You got to play with Manny Ramirez and, and David Ortiz and Jason Veritek. Uh, before we, we get to like the Rangers part of your career, what do you remember about your experiences with those guys? Any uh, Other than the fact that some of those guys were, were blocking your path to, to being a major league regular, um, these are some of the best players of their, you know, of, of their era uh, what do you recall uh, about playing with those guys? Uh, I remember knowing, I mean, even, even though as a young player, you don't quite understand the magnitude of everything. I still could look around the league and realize that, Hey, this is a, this is a unique experience getting to come up with these guys and rub shoulders with them. Um, you know, I remember just any, you know, David Ortiz, um, is basically a what what you see is what you get. Um, the way that he is on TV, very outspoken. Um, I think Peter Gamans mentioned one time that he talks to everybody. He's friendly, and and that's so true. Um, you know, he will give encouraging words plenty to the minor league guys, and and uh, I never forgot some of those things that he would say after maybe watching around a BP or talking about my swing. Uh, Manny Ramirez was a guy that, man, I love to watch hit. I think everybody did. He was goofy. Um, but I think that the funny thing about him is he was such a hard worker. He, he came across as a clown and a little bit goofy, but he showed up to the park early. He worked hard in the weight room. He did all of these hitting drills before games to train his eyes. Um, so that wasn't necessarily a, a, a what-you-see-is-what-you-get type of situation. Uh, Jason Veritek was known for just being so hard-nosed. I remember um, the last day of the season in 2006, uh, we actually, it was a, it ended up being suspended after five or six innings, and everybody was just so excited the Red Sox weren't in the race that year. And everybody's just ready to get out of there. And uh, so I kind of go around the clubhouse to everybody and uh, shake everybody's hands and probably knowing that I'm going back to AAA if I'm still with the Red Sox at the beginning of 2007. I remember Jason Veritek looking at me, and he hadn't had his best season that year, but he looked me dead in the eye, and he was like, come ready next year. And so everybody's all excited to go, and he still has that hard-nosed mentality, and I think that's why he could very well be be a big league manager, and, and you know, he gives plenty of insight to, to the major league club with the Red Sox these days because he's just – very well respected for for his mindset and his attitude. Um, I remember my first day in the big leagues, Kurt Schilling pokes me in the ribs uh, while I'm at the computer putting in my ticket request to tell me congratulations. So uh, just a lot of experiences that I'm like, man, these 
these are experiences that uh, most major league players don't get um, when they first get called up to the major leagues. All right, so you go to the Rangers, and you were, you know, I, I guess they're a couple ends of the spectrum here. On on one end, you've got guys like Michael Young who were with the organization long before this whole uh, movement towards what ultimately became 2010 and, and the success of that part of the decade really developed. Uh, then in 2000, uh, 2007, right, was the, the Mark Teixeira trade, and, uh, and, and that was a big... Uh, step for the organization you were kind of a part of of that period of time where you had a few years of runway before 2010 and then I guess on the the total opposite end of the spectrum is Cliff Lee who joined in the middle of 2010 as this thing was starting to take form so you had some time uh, with the organization leading up to 2010 what do you recall about uh, what it was like to be a part of the organization in those years? Did you guys know? Did you? I, I know that athletes always, uh, you know, they always believe that they can do it, whether it's themselves individually or the team. But w- was there an extra feeling of, hey, we're developing something that that's going to be really, really good here in a year or two, or was it just like any any other year in, in those years leading up? Uh, I think we knew that we had some pieces, um, you know, and kind of comparing it to, as we just talked about the Red Sox experience, um, you know, I think we had some solid offensive pieces in place. I know that um, the pitching wasn't necessarily where we wanted it to be. And, um, you know, there were some talk about, guys like Matt Harrison and Derek Holland that were, that were young guys in the organization. Um, Holland was obviously drafted by the Rangers and homegrown and Harrison was part of that to share a trade. So just little pieces like here and, uh, you know, Scott Feldman was a guy that, that had come along. He was a reliever. Uh, they changed his arm slot. He was, uh, he was a low three quarter guy out of the bullpen kind of sidearm. And then, they, they raised up his arm slot and they developed a, him throwing a cutter and, um, you know, and then eventually Cliff Lee came along. So all these, all these pitching moves were kind of put in place over a series of years. But I think personally, I was just trying to grind it out. I was trying to make sure that I could hold down a job and, um, and hopefully the, the team's success would, would come with that. Um, in 2009, we took a step forward, which was my second full year. And, um, you know, as you mentioned, the Youngs and the Kinslers were there. Marlon Bird had a good year in 2009. Hank Blaylock was still there um, after having some some really good years, um, you know, around the mid-2000s. And so things things were coming along, and just slowly but surely you just see these these moves and these pieces added, whether it's – uh, you know, Cliff Lee was probably one of the last ones, but whether it was Colby Lewis being brought back from Japan and, and trying to do it in a creative way where they didn't have to spend a lot of money. C.J. Wilson um, had some successful years in the bullpen, but had stated a desire to, to be moved into the rotation. He did, and, and he passed that test with flying colors. Um, Vladimir Guerrero was was a huge sign in 2010, and I think that's when we started to realize this could be something. Because I remember the trade deadline in 2009, 
we were really hoping, and I think that's what you mentioned. As players, you always think you can get the job done. And I remember Roy Halladay was on the trading block uh, around the deadline in '09, and we didn't end up getting him. And that was a little bit of a letdown. Um, but I think in hindsight, you realize that you really want to strike at the right time. You don't want to give away your prospects and make a move for that guy like a Halliday or eventually getting Cliff Lee. You want to make sure that it's at the right time. And I think 2009 was just a little premature for us. 2010 was the perfect opportunity to trade a guy like Justin Smoke and, and Blake Bevan to, to land Cliff Lee. All right, Murph, and I think people can tell just your your recall of this sort of thing. I, I you know, I, I think you got two types of players, and and you know, this is an overgeneralization, but you got guys who they show up to the park, they take care of business, they go home, and and they don't. It's not that they don't know what's going on around baseball, but they just they're not. And and also not to suggest they don't love baseball, but they're they're not while they're playing as much of a, a baseball fan as others. And then there are guys like yourself who I think really you, while you were playing and correct me if I'm wrong, but you, you knew what was going on around the league. You, you enjoyed following uh, what was going on around the league, knowing uh, you know, the, the different players and, and maybe, you know, this guy's having a great season or that guy uh, is doing this or that. Who, who are some of the guys that you really enjoyed? If, if you were ever able to separate yourself while you were playing and, and become a fan, even if just for moments. Who are the guys you most enjoyed watching play from, from up close? Um, I would say number one might be, well, I, I would say, all right, so growing up I loved Ken Griffey Jr. And I think I've just always enjoyed, obviously I, I enjoy the game, but I enjoy the fun aspect of it and the, and the childlike aspect of it. And I think one of the reasons why I love Ken Griffey Jr. so much growing up is because not only was he supremely talented, but just the smile and the backwards hat taking BP or in the home run derby and just, you know, his nickname was the kid. And so he played baseball like he was a kid. And I think I always enjoyed guys like that. And uh, some of the guys that stick out the most to me that played baseball like they were little kids were Adrian Beltre, Nelson Cruz, uh, Vladimir Guerrero, and then you have your your Youngs and your Kinslers as well. Josh Hamilton in, in his heyday, you know, just running into walls and diving for everything. Those are, are the players that, you know, obviously, once again, they stick out because they're supremely talented. But um, I think Adrian would be the one um, who stood out the most and, and really – helped me to change my own mindset and, and just generally loosen up because I always had fun and I wanted to have fun. But um, I think there was an aspect of me before playing with Adrian and, and just, and it wasn't just Adrian, it was those teams. I mean, any, anybody from DFW who, who watched the Rangers in those world series years and the playoff years and saw, um, you know, the antlers and they saw the claw and all that fun stuff. They saw, they saw teams who had a really good time, and I think the, those teams really helped me as a player and as a person kind of come out of my shell a little bit, not take the game so seriously um, to, to really enjoy it, and, um, and, and Adrian's at the very beginning of that. All right, now Adrian was not a part of the 2010 team that uh, 
that made the World Series run. You were, and uh, you had your first postseason home run against the Yankees in, in Game 2 of the ALCS, and it was early in the game. I think it helped give the Rangers a, a multiple-run lead uh, in, in the first game of the series. Uh, you guys got up to a big lead, and then uh, it, it slipped away late. I think the Yankees scored like six runs over the final three innings to come back from down 5 nothing. Uh, and then to come back and, and win that next game at home was huge, and, and you had a big part of that. What's it like hitting a home run in the playoffs? How, how, wh- wh- I mean, what do you remember from rounding the bases to just that feeling of doing it on that stage and doing it against that team, too? I mean, it, the, the Yankees uh, on the playoffs, I mean, you know that all the baseball eyes are on that series if the Yankees are involved. I remember being thankful um, just because it was like the fifth to last game of the regular season that I actually got hurt. Um, I tweaked my groin a little bit, and so I missed the last five games of the regular season. Uh, I was at the point where I would have played against uh, righties um, or started against every righty in the postseason and uh, actually did not start game two of the division series uh, against James Shields because they were still kind of trying to make sure I was 100%. Um, So just very fortunate uh, how quickly I I got back to full health. Um, And I just remember feeling good about that game. I remember it being a day game and that, uh, you know, after game one, we got off to a a good lead. Um, Josh Hamilton hit a a big home run off CC Sabathia. And then just the Yankee mystique, you, you know, the, um, the pinstripes, they, they came back on us and we we're like, no way, this isn't going to tell the tale of the series. And then um, before that day game, we're out in, in batting practice and I'm standing out in left field and there's all these Yankee fans that are there during batting practice and they're talking trash to me during batting practice, which in my own home ballpark, which never really happened before. So um, I just remember... Having a, I didn't really talk back, but I had a confident feeling like, all right, just just wait and see what happens today. And I think that game was a statement of, regardless of whether you guys came back last night or not, we're not going to go away. We're going to keep battling, and last night was a fluke. We'll give it to you, but um, you're going to get our best for the rest of the series. And, um, man, we... We played really good baseball. I remember just going into the postseason thinking um, how the Yankees and the Rays being in the World Series a few years before, um, how maybe they had an advantage on us because we were young and we were inexperienced in the postseason. But talk about a group of guys who just took it and ran with it, and they didn't care about um, what type of stage they were on or, or whatever. We just we were ready for whatever challenge, whatever pitcher, um, whatever hurdle was in front of us. David Murphy with us. Uh, I, I want to ask you some questions about your career in general, but uh, I, I remember in 2014 when you came back to Arlington, and it always struck me, and I, I noticed it still, like when we would do Frisco games, we'd go down the elevator after the game, the amount of people who'd want to just talk to you or say hi to you or if I was walking up without you, hey, where's Murph? Is Murph here? 
And I'll never forget the ovation you got in 2014. And, it, you know, it, it was a tough year for the Rangers. Uh, and so it wasn't like it was a packed house, but it was really loud. I don't I don't know what you were able to hear from the box because I know that, you know, the, the sound carries at different parts of the ballpark in different ways. But I remember being at press level uh, and I, I had left the press box because I wanted to be outside to hear. I knew you were going to get recognition but the ovation you got from the fans to me was really cool. And I'm sure it was bittersweet to go back to Arlington on the other side, being an Indian. But what was that like to to receive the love that you received uh, from the fans when you did come back for that first time in 2014? That was, that was really special. Um, you know, I tried to in the grand scheme of things, look in the mirror, uh, appropriately. And, um, you know, what I tell people, you know, you know now that it's all said and done, I, I tell them that I feel like I was pretty much an average player. I had, you know, two years that were maybe a little above average in, in 2010 and 2012, but for the most part, I was an average player. And, um, and I feel like the fans, I don't know if it was because, um, you know, I went to Baylor, and um, and I'm a Texas boy, and they knew that. But um, I feel like they treated me like I was an all star, and uh, like like I was that caliber of player when uh, when I never really was. So it's it's just amazing how uh, you know, especially in a team sport like baseball. You know, if, if you are recognized as part of the greatest teams. Um, in franchise history, then maybe it's going to make you look better as an individual. And so, you know, I have a lot of credit to give to to my teammates just for for the way that my the the fans treat me. And so, um, but the funny thing that I remember about that moment is I just I remember being awkward um, <laughs> because <laughs> I I think you know I I remember thinking that. They were. I was getting the type of ovation that you describe, but I was never the type of player to think I'm going to get this type of moment. So I'm going to take a step back and I'm going to, you know, take off my helmet and uh, and you know wave to the crowd in the middle of a game. I just, I just never felt like I deserved that that type of treatment. And so, and I remember even because Darvish was throwing that game. And he stepped off the mound and kind of took some time. And I was like, all right, let's, you know, get on the mound so we can, <laughs> like, <laughs> I, want, I want this moment to be over. Like, I, I feel weird. So um, I think, and, and one of my friends who uh, who lives in DFW, you know, we're, uh, we, we went to high school together and he just, you know, he, he's uh, been right there with me throughout my whole career. And so from a fan and outsider perspective, he's like, man, that was your moment. Why don't you? you know, why didn't you, uh, why didn't you tip your hat to the crowd or take off your helmet or whatever? And I was just like, man, I just don't, I don't know. I, like, I feel like I just didn't know how to do that. And so, um, the way that uh, Michael Young or an Adrian Beltre or, you know, um, I remember Napoli got a, a, a great ovation when he came back. So I just, I don't know. I, I didn't know how to, how to react in the situation. So I guess, uh, I felt like it was a little bit awkward after the fact. I was going to ask you, and it would have been a silly question based on what I shared earlier. I was going to ask you if you remembered uh, who started for the Rangers that game, but you kind of answered it uh, 
on your own there with with you, Darvish. Yeah. I guess he's a he's a memorable guy. That's not a that's not maybe a guy you would forget. Do you remember? Let's see how good you are. Do you remember who started for the Indians that game? For the Trevor Bauer. Wow! <laughs> yeah. Uh, that what well, there's there's little bits and pieces to my memory, and the the reason why I remember Trevor Bauer started is because I remember that Rubenetto door had an absolute bomb over my head in right field off of him, and because uh, at that point I was still trying to gauge, you know, Bauer was a young guy, and I knew he had good stuff, and he was an up and comer, but. I remember after that at bat thinking, okay, is this Odor kid? That's the first time I ever played against him, and I remember hearing against him coming up with the Rangers, or when I was when he was coming up, and I was with the Rangers, and uh, so I, I remember thinking after that at bat, okay, I was like, was that just was that a good battle of two young players? I was like, did Bauer just make a mistake there, or is Odor that good of a player? And and also, I didn't know Odor had that kind of pop. You know, you think of a traditional, you know, little second baseman being a, a slap speed type of guy that might hit for average and steal bases, but to be able to go upper deck right there, that was that was impressive. All right. So, I, side note, I, I don't know, you know, how you, you ended your career. Uh, the next year, you you played for the Angels, and I, you know, I, I remember you played for the Angels, but I guess I. I, I remember more so the Indians. I was going back and watching game 162 of that year. That was the Cole Hamels complete game that secured the division for the Rangers. And I'm watching, and there's David Murphy. I, what was it like being on not just on the other side, but on the other side in such a big game for the Rangers? And what do you remember? Because you guys had a chance to make the playoffs. Like That was going to be kind of a backdoor into the playoffs. You guys had this massive comeback the day before, uh, late in the game. And then game 162 is Hamels versus Garrett Richards. Uh, Pujols hit the home run early, so you guys got out in front. Do you have, like, that's a big game in Rangers history. Uh, you know, it's not necessarily a big game in Angels history, but uh, do you remember, what do you remember about that particular game? Um. Well, once again, it, it, hitting the rewind button a little bit, um, and this is not a, a good memory in in Rangers history, just because they could have clinched the day before. Game one sixty one was a really good game, but it ended up in our favor. Uh, I remember Colby Lewis started for the Rangers, and uh, Sean Tolleson was in the game with maybe a three or four run lead. And uh, I don't remember exactly how it went, but in the ninth inning, um, we ended up basically, I I don't know if we took it to extra innings or um, if we won in the ninth, but it was a great comeback by the Angels um, to force, you know, game 162 being meaningful. And, uh, you know, I remember when I got traded from the Indians to the Angels, the Indians were probably... I don't know, five to ten games below 500. Uh, We were not in the race. We had underachieved. And then the Angels were leading the division, I believe, ten games over 500. And then, um, sure enough, the Rangers trade for Cole Hamels. And it wasn't supposed to be, you know, that was supposed to be for um, for following seasons and, and not for not for that year. But the Rangers went on that massive run. Adrian Beltre was on fire for the rest of the season. And um, I just remember, you know, 
I remember it being, yes, it was bittersweet. It was weird to, um, to be on a team that had been a rival of the Rangers for so many years and now was trying to beat the Rangers, uh, getting beat on that field. And also just thinking, uh, expecting, I believe it was October 4th, 2015 and expecting that to not be my last major league game. I, I had a decent year that year and I was expecting to get a major league job um, in 2016 and that didn't happen. I ended up retiring after going to spring training for a little bit. And so it just, it, it didn't happen. And, and then thinking back on it, how, you know, storybook, as I mentioned that, that was the ballpark where I, where I had my best memories and the team, you know, the Rangers were the closest to my heart. And sure enough, I was able to, uh, uh, spend my last major league innings on that field, even if it was not as a member of the Rangers. All right. I want to, I want to take a, a look at your career and, you know, you mentioned earlier that, you know, your role, uh, in, especially in that 2010 season, was you were going to start against righties. Um, what, as a left-handed hitter, and, and now matchups, you know, more so than ever, are of interest with the new rule that pitchers have to stay in for at least three batters unless they end an inning, and you know, the, all these different uh, wrinkles. But were you ever accepting of being a guy, and and not that you didn't face lefties ever, but were you ever accepting of, Hey, this is my role. This is who I am. Or were you until your last day as a major leaguer constantly trying to show, Hey, lefties, righties, it doesn't matter. Cause I, I you know, I, I, I remember looking at your numbers and I could be wrong. Your batting average against lefties wasn't bad at all. It was just that the power numbers weren't the same against lefties as they were against righties. So what, I guess what, as a competitor who wants to be in there every single day, what, what was that like? Uh, I guess internally for you, uh, trying to grow and improve, was it just, hey, this is my role and I'm going to be the best at my role? Or was it a, this is my role now, but gosh darn, I'm going to do everything I can to show them that I can hit lefties, righties, people that throw from both sides. It doesn't really matter. I think if you were to ask me that question on different days, I would have given you different answers. Uh, There were days when... um, I knew that my timing and just everything wasn't right, and I knew that if you threw me up there against the lefty, I was really going to struggle. There were also days when, uh, you know, cause spring training matchups don't matter as much. And so plenty of times I would face um, a string of lefties in spring training, and it would really help me to stay on the ball, and it would really help my results against righties as well. And so there might be a few weeks or even a month at times where I didn't face a lefty at all. And I was thinking in my mind, man, I really need, I really need to face a lefty right now just to get back on track. Um, and there were plenty of days where I was just like, man, I feel like I'm getting the short end of the stick here. I feel like I can be an everyday player. I feel like I can show that I can play all 162 games regardless of who is thrown out there. And I mean, and, and I, like I said, I was a guy that tried to look accurately in the mirror. Um, there, uh, I, I knew, I knew the numbers. I knew the stats. I knew that my average was decent, but the power wasn't there as you mentioned. And, um, I, I thought in my mind, why not just hit me, you know, just hit me ninth. You know, you can keep me in there. If, if you're going to hit me maybe sixth against a righty, 
just drop me in the order. Like, I'm not going to be a liability. I'm not going to be overmatched. I'm going to go up there and I'm going to have a good at bat and I can still help the team win, um, even if I might not be a home run threat or I might not uh, hit the ball in the gap the way that I would against a righty. So it's, it, was, it was a mixture of emotions. And I think later in my career, the fire was still there a little bit. But I think knowing um, the likelihood of things changing when you're a player in your young 30s, um, it, you know, I think you, you know that you've kind of solidified your career numbers a little bit and who you are and what the perception is. So I know that it's, it's not very likely that you're going to change people's minds at that point. Why? I guess if you had the answers, then maybe I wouldn't, you know, we wouldn't be having this conversation. But I, I've had people ask me this before, and I mean, who better to answer this question than someone who actually was in the box? But I've had people ask, well, if a guy can hit well for average against one side, why does their power drop? Well, was there something about lefties that you think was it just seeing the ball that made it tougher for you to square it up? Why Why would there be a difference in power if you were still able to get hits against lefties? I think because um, yeah, it is, it's the timing and it's seeing the ball. Against a righty, I mentioned my approach. I could look fastball in the middle of the plate and I could adjust off of that. I might even be able to get fooled by a slider or a changeup and get out front, and I would still be able to hit the ball out of the ballpark off my front foot and not not balanced up there. Against the lefty, things there, there was less margin for error. So um, it was more of a guessing game. Um, I might have to look fastball. You know, I would have to kind of cut the plate in half and look away or look in, which I did not have to do against a righty. Um, the way that the breaking pitch moves away from you um, makes it harder uh, unless it's a, it's a breaking pitch that's up and hanging in the middle of the zone, makes it more challenging. And I just didn't have, not to mention, I, I didn't really have great opposite field power. The way that my swing worked, um, I had good pull power. And the way that most of my games, say, from my career were in Arlington, which was big to left field, might have been different if I played in a place like Baltimore, but um, there were so many balls that I feel like I hit pretty well, and I didn't get that true backspin where the ball took off off of my bat. My swing kind of created balls that came off my bat with side spin and didn't really carry. And so, man, I can't tell you how many times I flew out to the warning track in left field playing in Arlington, and I'm like, man, if I was playing in a different ballpark, <laughs> um, I might have had a double off the wall, and that's that's the tricky part because people think Arlington is such a, an offensive stadium, but I feel like left field maybe is a little bit big and, and plays pretty true. The ball doesn't carry like it does to right center. All right, Murph, before I let you go, I, I can't let you come on here and say you're just an average player uh, when you were able to receive, I, I think, a really cool honor last year, at the end of last year, the transition from Globe Life Park to Globe Life Field uh, being a part of uh, the celebrations and uh, being a part of the, the the Globe Life Park team and uh, and and being recognized in Rangers history in, in that way. Uh, so I'd say for an average player, uh, that's pretty good. Well, I'll take that, and that's that's the greatest honor of my career, easily. Because uh, you know, kind of when I when I talked about it on TV last year in the pre and post game show. You know, you have your, your Youngs and your Beltres and 
uh, guys like Will Clark um, of, of the, the older Rangers teams that um, that's kind of just another drop in the bucket for them. Not that they don't appreciate it. Uh, I'm sure they definitely appreciated it. But when you've won batting titles and you have gotten MVP votes and you've won gold gloves and had so many different honors, it just kind of, you know, it falls right in there when, you know, that's, that's the, the top for me um, to be able to, to be voted in um, by the fans there and, and for my name to be mentioned amongst those other names. So, uh, you know, once again, um, I have to give a lot of credit to, to the teammates that I played with because, um, you know, I don't think an honor like that ever would have been given if I didn't play on the best teams in, in Rangers history. And then also, um, you know, I, I tried to make sure that, um, you know, that I was a high-quality character guy and teammate on top of, you know, doing the best that I could on the field. And, and hopefully all of those things came into play. So um, I don't know. I mean, I, I think all in all, um, I got to live my dream, and um, I tried to savor every minute of it. I was texting. You know, I watched a little bit of that the replay of Game 6 of the 2010 ALCS last night. And uh, I was texting with Colby Lewis after, and it's funny because we were both kind of of the same mindset. We don't necessarily feel old, but and we, and we did try to savor every day of our major league career. And I, I remember a few years in thinking, I need to savor this because it's probably going to go fast. And wow, it did go fast, and I can't believe I'm almost four years to the day that I retired. So um, it went fast during, and it's gone even faster since. 